I, I think this is probably the hardest problem to work on in the world. That's one of the reasons why it's really fun for me. All right, so I'm here with Chris Turner. Chris is the founder and CEO at Moonrise, a co-learning space where kids build things and learn together. Previously, he built, bootstrapped, and led a startup as CEO from initial concept to acquisition in 2017. So Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Likewise. So I think it'd be amazing to start by hearing your backstory. Um, how did you come from the startup world to the education, to the alternative education space? Sure. Uh, so, so I was previously a nonprofit founder. I way back in high school, um, I had to do a senior project, and I decided that I wanted to help kids in hospitals. And it occurred to me that they uh, they couldn't really have a nice Christmas because they were stuck in hospitals. So I thought, you know, what would be the best possible Christmas, not just for, you know, kids in general, um, or for kids in hospitals, but for kids in general. And I thought, you know, it'd be really cool if we could take them on a limousine and take them to a big toy store and throw a big shopping spree for them with their friends and family. Uh, so I did that. We did that for uh, that year when I was in high school. And then I took that nonprofit with me to college and kind of grew it through college thought that that meant, you know, I should be in the nonprofit world. So I went on to get a master's degree in nonprofit management and then graduated and got a job doing fundraising for a hospital. Um, and then I wound up at a food bank and kind of along the way, I realized, you know, what I really liked was starting something from the ground up and growing it. And that that's called being a startup founder, not being a nonprofit employee. Um, but I had just, you know, gotten a degree in nonprofit management. And prior to that, uh, it was in business. And so, so I thought, you know, I don't really have any great skills to, to start my own thing. It seems like everything's moving towards technology, um, but I don't really have any tech skills. And at the time, you know, I was looking a lot um, into education and learning. And, you know, it occurred to me that I, I think school is eventually going to die out. It just seems wrong from first principles. But right now we have these things called like grades and transcripts. So what if we had creative portfolios for kids? And so I thought, you know, we should prompt kids with creative projects and then those could get saved to a portfolio and that could replace the transcript eventually. Um, so I wanted to build that company and I realized, you know, everyone I would call to build that that technology was going to charge me over $100,000 and take six months. Um, and with startups, there's no guarantees. In fact, you know, if there is any guarantee, it's, it's that you have a low probability of success. Um, so I thought, you know, I, I don't have a lot of money and I don't have the skills to do this. And I'm about to drop $100,000 on this thing that's likely to fail. Um, so that's not good odds. Um, and along the way, I found this coding boot camp that I could enroll in. And it was $10,000 with a guarantee of a job at the end. And I thought, you know, why don't I use this to build the first version of my app? And so I wound up doing that as my final project in that class uh, in two weeks, about 10 business days. And so I had this realization, I wasn't even very good at coding, but I realized like, even as somebody who wasn't very good, I could still build kind of a minimum viable product, you know, for, for, uh, in 10 days. And so I went to a local startup pitch competition and I, I pitched this idea of building apps for startups in 10 business days for $10,000. And there was a guy in the crowd who raised his hand and said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll be your first customer. <laughs> so, uh, so that was the, the starting of, of my entrepreneurship journey in the tech space. Um, we grew that over three years, uh, got acquired in 2017, and then I started working on Moonrise. 
I think we see from the beginning that you're not a very conventional businessman. You're quite compassionate about the things you build. And uh, I, I was reading an article you wrote on Medium about pouring your heart into your work and being guided by emotion in business. And we see this in your work at Moonrise, which, uh, we, which we'll delve into soon. But still, how did you get go from 10 Rocket, your startup that got acquired in 2017, to launching Moonrise? You sort of hinted that you had some intent in doing something like that before. But how do you go on to create Moonrise? Yeah. Um, so I always, when I was working on 10 Rocket, my co-founder would always talk to me about, uh, you know, why am I spending my time on 10 Rocket and why am I not doing what I really love, which is, which is education. Um, and, you know, so, so it's always been the plan to kind of get back to that. Um, at the time I just didn't feel like I had any good ideas for it. Um, so so the reason, one of the reasons we sold 10 Rocket was I didn't really have a great idea for education, but I did have what felt like a really good idea for the future of work. And, you know, we, we can dive into that if you want, but I spent, you know, about a year and a half really building that out and researching it and talking to customers. And, you know, it, it occurred to me that the vast majority of people don't like their work. And that's a, just an outright failure of society. Like if you think about if, if the education system should be good at anything, it's cranking out meaningful work, right? Um, you're told all along the way that this is all in service of getting a good job in the future. And yet when you graduate, you know, only about 13% of people in the U.S. find, find their work meaningful. And that's one of the highest in, in any country. So, so, you know, when I dove into that, what I realized is that the people who love their work the most are people who work independently, and when you dive into that, you realize that almost all people who work independently don't really work in the fields that they studied. And if they, they kind of found along the way things that they liked doing just through trial and error, and they liked doing them so much, it almost felt like play. Um, and so I thought, you know, that, that sounds like if they had just done this sooner and, it, and had done more trial and error as kids, they would have reached these conclusions sooner gotten their experience out of the way in the, in the beginning to where they scale up in those things and then they would be able to monetize it. But oddly enough, you're not allowed to do that in school. It actually blocks you from doing that. Um, and that just seems crazy to me uh, that it's, you know, if you ask people what the education system does, they would say prepares you for jobs, right? So even if you evaluate it by that criteria and no moral criteria, it still is an outright failure. So so that's kind of when I finally made the switch. I was working at a co-working space at the time, and I would also spend some time in coffee shops. And I kind of had this realization, like, why doesn't why, why don't we have anything like this for kids? Like, this is where I'm working, and I have a laptop. And there's all kinds of learning opportunities in ed tech online, but kids aren't allowed to use it because they're sitting in Spanish class, <laughs> and they're, they're being delivered a lecture. Um, and at the same time, you know, my son, so we had kids along the way. Um, my son had, had just turned four. So we started doing what parents do and looking into local schools and that sort of thing. And I wasn't, you know, a big fan of schools, but there's some decent, you know, private ones where, where we live. And I would walk into these ones that are about, you know, $2,500 a month and kids were still spelling cat on a chalkboard in a room of other kids their same age. And I thought, okay, like whatever I do in my life, I have to fix this. Like, this is so crazy that this is still how we're doing things. Um, so, you know, there's further steps along the way in terms of what shaped the idea, but that's kind of what led to the, to the decision to go for it. Yeah. What you described earlier, right? Not being satisfied with their job and the opposite of those who actually were satisfied working on and figuring out through trial and error what they love to do. 
I would think you just described the complete opposite of school, right? Like, uh, for so many reasons, school just isn't the best place to go and learn things. Ironically. Or not ironically, because it's based on a totally wrong definition of what it means to actually learn. Uh, what the brilliant Karl Popper called the bucketry of mind. The idea that learning happens through some form of passive absorption of information. You just feed your mind a lot of information, keep repeating it until it sits in place, and then throw it all on a test. There you've learned, according to the conventional definition of learning. But that that isn't actually the way we learn, right? There's an active process to learning. You conjecture and you criticize the new ideas you get in your head. And so, yeah, going forward from here, I think it'd be great to hear and delve into the problem with school and the many forms of school. Sure. Sure, it's, it's, I should say that school does serve a function in society. Like, they, it didn't just emerge from the ether. Like, there's a lot of theories about it being founded, you know, as a form of societal coercion. And there are a lot of truths to that, right? Um, but, but there is like a, a fact of the matter that today most parents work and most parents aren't allowed to bring their kids into the office. And so there is a need for space for kids. And there's, you know, so generally, if you look at, if you, if you take kids seriously, which we could talk about that, you know, philosophically as well, um, you know, and, and you say, okay, let's not distinguish between kids and adults. Like, let's just talk about people, right? What do people need? People need space to do things freely. They need meaningful work and they need people to do it with, right? So it's basically space, work, and community. Um, and it just so happens that there's not really many spaces for kids. And so, so the space that kids go to is a school and there's all different kinds of school, but it's just kind of, you know, preordained by society right now that that's where kids go during the day. And when you buy a school, you, you buy work and community with that, right? You're buying a bundle of goods. Um, and the problem with that is that that bundle of goods comes with a bundle of improper philosophy or incorrect philosophy, namely the the uh, the philosophy that goes against Popper, right? The uh, the bucket theory of the mind, the idea that coercion uh, is good because it leads to these outcomes that are desirable for society, and the specific bundle of community that you get as a kid is uh, same age classrooms, typically um, outside of certain things like Montessori and that sort of thing. So, so all of the, the problems come with, I think it stems from that philosophy and the fact that there's just not, you know, more optionality, um, you know, when it comes to the sorts of spaces that kids can go to during the day. Um, I'll stop there for a second before I dive in. There are so many places we could go with what's wrong with school. Um, maybe we can start by picking one, like, you know, there's wellness, there's preparation for the future, there's uh, learning, there's morals, uh, we can dive into anyone you want to. Sure, but on what you mentioned just now, that was a very uncommon way to talk about the roots of school, even in the alternative education space. When you hear people talk about this, they usually go to the same story. They say, oh yeah, we needed factory workers during the industrial age, so we needed a system that pumped out so many factory workers and allowed for industrialization and progress and all that good stuff to happen. And so the school system is essentially based on an ancient time and the needs of producing mechanical factory workers. And there is some truth to all that, but you look at it from the perspective of the fundamental needs of a human being right now. And 
you include the important criteria of space. So that I thought was very interesting because that's not an argument about the roots of school uh, I hear very often. But yeah, going to school. So school is heavily focused on structure. The, the problem lies in the structure being coercive. I would think some structure is good. You know, we have the laws of physics that guide everything in our universe. Now, that is also a form of structure, but it's good, right? The laws allow us to be creative within them. And if we could do literally anything possible, I think that would be a little disastrous. So some structure, especially without coercion, is good. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, work is a form of structure and not all work is coercive. In fact, most, well, I don't want to say most, but a, a good bit of work is, is not coercive. Um, the, to the extent that work is not coercive is to the extent that it's meaningful, right? Um, having, I, I think the word structure is kind of used as like, it, it's used in a bunch of different ways. It's, it's used to imply kind of a framework that kids from work from. It's, it's used uh, in a similar way, in, instead of an infrastructure, more of like a platform, it can be used that way, um, or it can be used coercively. So I, I, think, I think what you don't want, like the, the criticism of unschoolers is, uh, is the complete lack of structure and exposure and intentionality. Like that's, I, I don't believe those things, but those are the criticisms, right? So if you, if you did a form of unschooling, where you left your kid, you know, to their own devices all day and never engaged with them, that would not be a good outcome. Um, so kids need the same sort of structure that adults need in the sense that they need to, what I call, they need to bump into reality to where they are exposed to meaningful problems that, that they can solve together. Um, learning is effectively solving meaningful problems. And it just so happens that school has the wrong idea of what problems to solve, how to solve them, and how to make those problems meaningful. And the only way that you can really enforce adoption of those problems being interesting is by making uh, coercive stakes involved. Uh, so if you get a bad grade, you fail. Like, like it's like you have failed, right? Um, and that carries negative social stigma and then that carries disappointment from parents and then that carries to uh, lower likelihood of getting into college and to getting a good job so it's very fear-based it's it's almost tribal in a way like you're kicked out of uh, out of your tribe if you don't get good grades and so that that is a trick that schools use to make these problems temporarily meaningful and the reason those the reason those things don't stick is because the meaning is gone once you get the grades, right? So you've gotten an A in in uh, chemistry. Now you move on to the next thing. Your problem is solved because you have not failed your class, but you have not solved the problem of making chemistry meaningful to you as an individual. Yeah, so on the point of meaning and problems, when you say making chemistry meaningful for the individual, could you... Uh, could you sort of explain that again? Because I don't think I caught that very well. I think there's got to be deeper things at play there. Sure, sure. So, 
So when you take a chemistry class, the, the reason why you learn temporarily the principles of chemistry is because the problem you have to solve is getting a good grade on that, on that uh, test. I see it now. Right. Uh, once you solve that problem, chemistry is no longer meaningful to you unless it solves some other problem in your life. Um, so you quickly forget the things that you've learned in chemistry because it's no longer meaningful. The only problem you were actually trying to solve is not learning chemistry. It's passing a grade, right? Um, this is why everybody has the collective experience of forgetting most of the things that they, you know, quote unquote, learned in school. Um, and there, there's some, there's some disjointment between, uh, learning philosophies here because you know people will say well look we, we obviously learned these things because we had to memorize them right and there's a difference between you know learning and memory or short-term and long-term memory so we may have temporarily learned those things but we can't remember them well enough to do anything meaningful in chemistry yeah that's right i think i get it better now so what we do not want to do then is make chemistry such a means to an end and instead we want to fall in love with chemistry itself Right, solve problems using chemistry and utilize its inherently meaningful quality. So that's cool. Now, could you talk about how it is at Moonrise? Like we were talking about spaces as a necessity for adults and children alike. And Moonrise is this beautiful co-learning space for kids. So how's it like at Moonrise? How does a day at Moonrise look like? And maybe what all do you keep in those uh, learning spaces to allow for greater immersion or learning to take place? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, so, so Moonrise, I think it, it might be the most, uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. It's very intentionally designed for treating kids as regular human beings. So the very first thing that you'll notice is that it doesn't look kiddie. Uh, it looks like a place that kids would enjoy being in, but when you think of kitty, you think of, you know, glitter and, uh, you know, cartoonish characters and things like that. Moonrise looks like a place that you as an adult would like to work. And quite often we'll have adults come up to the door, not knowing it's a space for kids, asking if they can come and get a coffee. <laughs> so that's the first thing that you'll notice is that we've we've taken seriously the idea of designing for kids as human beings and not as this separate class of person um so that's that's number one number two is kind of the question of what they do during the day and how we encourage uh and inspire learning right like actual learning not you know not the the grade and curriculum variety and you know the, the cool thing about this is that people are learning machines and they're very curious and that is never more true than when you're a kid and so if you give kids access to powerful tools and books uh, that are presented uh, in a way that's accessible and interesting to them, um, or, um, you know, just like natural spaces to kind of cozy up and, and read or, or do homework, they'll do those things. It's not easy to design for those things, but you can do it. Uh, so we have, you know, just to kind of give you a bullet list, we have uh, a podcast studio, which is also just kind of a general purpose recording studio. We have a, a library. Uh, it's about 18 feet tall that you can get to with a, with a rolling library ladder. Uh, and underneath, we have reading nooks that you can kind of tuck into and read a book. Uh, we have a makerspace, which is kind of a arts and crafts and project area. And that's kind of marked by having these big rolling toolboxes that kids can just open up and grab supplies out of without asking for permission. And all of this 
enables kids to do things on their own and to be very self-directed without much intervention from staff. And so what ends up, what ends up happening is we don't come in, you know, we don't start the day saying, hey, today you're going to record a podcast, but that's a thing that will happen. Like kids will get, go into the recording studio and they'll make a podcast uh, or a song or they'll, they'll invent something new with cardboard um, or they'll ask us questions from uh, seeing a picture of wildlife on a, on a screen that we have showing a bunch of different things that they haven't been exposed to necessarily. And that'll spark a conversation about what cheetahs do in the wild. Um, it's all driven by exposure and curiosity. And then we can dive deep once they have a natural interest in those things. That seems like an amazing place for everyone. Um, it sounds like you're not quite fond of the whole kitty aspect of regular kid things. And that's perhaps why you created something that was appealing to kids as well as adults. And I'm curious, and I don't know a better way to phrase this than how did you create a space that was both aesthetically appealing to children and to adults? It does definitely seem intentionally designed, but again, you want it to be as free a place as it gets for learning to happen with some structure that promotes learning, not hinders it. So how's it that both the kids and the adults like it at Moonrise? Yeah, so so I should clarify that, that adults like it, but they're not allowed in. So we, you know, if you're a parent, you can drop your kids off and stick around and, and work out of the space. Um, adults have co-working spaces and coffee shops, but kids don't really have a space of their own. And so that's very important um, to protect it as a space for kids. Um, beyond that, like the, there are, uh, and, and David Deutsch talks about this in his book, that there are objective criteria for things like beauty. And so, you know, it's, that's always been a really interesting idea to me ever since I read that book. It was kind of one of those things that I intuited, but never really fully put words to before I read that book. And I, I was almost like given permission by that book to explore it more deeply, which is what led me to Christopher Alexander. Um, so, so there's certain things that you can pretty well guess what will happen. You don't know for sure. So it's still based on fallibilism. But if you put a, if you put a 13 foot library ladder um, in front of an 18 foot library and you do nothing else, you can pretty well reason that if you put a kid in that space, that kid will climb that ladder and roll on it to get a book like that. That tends to happen. Um, if you give a kid a, a whole bunch of uh, rolling toolboxes full of craft supplies, they will probably open that and make something with it. Um, the reason why adults don't do more of this, well, there's a couple of reasons. It's not like they don't like doing those things. It's that they've been kind of, you know, more exposed to, to other things in the world. They have more access to a broader range of tools. They've lost a little bit of that childlike sense of wonder. And they have other things that they're working on, right? So kids don't really have everything in their minds so planned out. So they're much more um, explorative and curious and frankly, they just respond to the idea that somebody has designed something just for them. Adults respond to the more objective criteria. So less to the library ladder, more to the abundance of natural light. We have about 60 plants at Moonrise. Um, you know, it's pretty well documented. Yeah, that, you know, plants make people happy indoors. Um, you know, we, we don't really use a whole lot of, we, we don't have, hardly any plastic outside of things like games and Legos. So everything's made out of metal and wood and velvet. <laughs> um, and, 
you know, we, we have really nice music playing and it smells good in the air. Like that's, those are, those are all things that just make people universally happy. The kid stuff is more, uh, explorative in nature. Yeah. Great to count in the objective beauty aspect. Um, earlier we were talking about how unschooling sort of doesn't work when you take all the structure away and let the kid be among their own devices. So, uh, I'm curious, have you read Iwan Illich's book, Deschooling Society? Oh yes, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Illich has this amazing concept of learning, learning webs or networks where people can connect and share what they're good at with those who want to learn those skills. And so it's curious that the EdTech space, so many YouTube videos and access to educational articles, did not really revolutionize the education system. Maybe that's again a problem with the lack of structure and so much information, but if we want to scale this unconventional yet better way to go about learning, the internet would seem to be the place to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right, and that was the premise of things like Khan Academy. So, you know, everything when Khan Academy came out, it was, you know, really the the online revolution. Anybody working in startups at the time kind of, you know, well, I don't, I don't want to say anybody, but you could kind of see the writing on the wall that, you know, things were moving more and more online and, and less and less in person. And so there was just a, an abundance of things that said, huh, what if we did X on the internet or in the app store? And, you know, a whole bunch of experiments were run. Some of them were successful. And the ones that were really successful are the biggest companies around today. Um, you would have guessed, and I think I would have guessed at that time that the number one thing that should have been revolutionized by the internet is education because fundamentally the internet is about access to information um, and scaling that and school is about i mean it's predicated on the idea of the growth of knowledge and you know if you give people an abundance of information and critiques of that information and rabbit holes to go down to and forums to join and software to, to complete. This seems to be what you would do. <laughs> like it would be really hard to compete with the internet. So that was, that was really the thing that got me most interested at the problem of, of fixing the education system. It's like, surely this should have been fixed. Why hasn't it? And this kind of brings me back to the the point about space. I think the fundamental reason why EdTech didn't fix the education system is because parents need a space to drop off their kids to learn and make friends during the day. And that is not just a criteria for parents. I think kids actually need that space too. Um, one of the problems with homeschooling is that you're kind of just shifting the place that you spend all day in, right? But people don't want to spend eight hours in one space. You know, they want to be out in the real world. They want to engage with other people and ideas. Your home is not really designed just for the purpose of work. So it's kind of a bundle of different things like, you know, bedrooms and kitchens and that sort of thing. Um, but you're not going to put a, you know, a giant 3D printer in your house. <laughs> uh, so, or, or a huge podcast studio necessarily, although that's becoming smaller and smaller and, and easier to adopt. Um, but yeah, so you need space. And right now, the only space to send your kids to school uh, to learn during the day or, or, you know, the primary space is a school. And I just don't think it will be in the future. Once you build a different space, then you give parents and kids the ability to tap into all these resources that they're strangely not even using at school. The idea that school hasn't adopted more of this technology is really bizarre. Yeah. What would you say about a neat virtual reality space? 
in the future, is that also some form of space that could be utilized well for our purposes, or would you say uh, a physical touch to learning in the real world is still necessary? Yeah, so so I read Fabric of Reality, and David Deutsch talks a lot about you know virtual reality. So when David Deutsch, as as with many things with David Deutsch, when he talks about virtual reality, he's talking about it at a fundamentally different level and plane than than most people are. So when most people hear virtual reality, they imagine an Oculus and you know uh, all the things that Meta is doing. And when David Deutsch talks about uh, virtual reality. He's kind of talking at the physical limits of what virtual reality could be and how it could almost like simulate anything principle, right? So I don't think I, I'm I'm fairly certain. Well, who knows? <laughs> I, I don't I don't think we will get to David Deutsch's level of virtual reality in my lifetime. If we were to be able, in principle, to get to that level of virtual reality where it is, you know, more or less indistinguishable from real life, I think that's the interesting place to play with your question. But practically, um, if we're talking about, you know, in my lifetime, will I think this happen? Um, I think I think it will not reach the bandwidth in my lifetime of physical reality. Physical reality just has a lot of beautiful aspects to it. Like even if it's apples to apples in the far distant future, um, you know, with the simulation versus reality, I just think it's more fun to play in reality and to have a thing that's real to the touch instead of something that's simulated. And so I'm very much a real person. Um, are, are a fan of, of real things and not of virtual things. Um, but the intersection of the two is more likely. Yeah, if we can allow both of them to guide learning, I think that would be really cool. And I'm excited for where that technology goes in the future. But for some people, like a minority case, the internet really did change their lives for the better. And that was one of them. I think I learned more online these past couple of years than all those years in school. Now, obviously, I did learn stuff in school, but that was maybe just a result of the immersion in that school environment, you know, in the classroom and mostly outside with peers and whatnot. So, yeah, I think that would be an interesting concept to delve into. Many think if you can immerse yourself into a subject, you learn it easily. But, but immersion isn't how you really learn. The process is different, and that distinction is important to make, I suppose. I'm definitely more a fan of the Popper criteria. Um, immersion is a great tool for learning, but I don't think it's how learning works at like a like a principle, like like a first principles level. Uh, immersion is just a way for meaningful problems to solve, uh, like enter your brain, right, and go through that Popper criteria. Um, yeah, I mean. For, for you to want to guess at, like the, the conjecture part, for you to want to guess at something, you have to have a baseline interest in that thing. Like it, and, and I think that interest part is the meaning part. There's a ton of things, like there's way more things in the world that we are not interested in than we are interested in. And so we just don't really guess about those things. We don't make conjectures about the vast majority of things. When you, when you immerse yourself in an environment suddenly the realm of things that are interesting to you um, becomes more apparent. So, you know, right now I'm in Georgia. If, if I go to Iran and I'm, and I, let's say I have to be there or I've chosen to be there for, uh, for a year, suddenly that language is very, very meaningful to me. And it wasn't meaningful to me at all before. Um, so that immersion is just a way for that problem to suddenly kind of become meaningful and for me to start making conjectures about it. 
Yeah, I really like that concept of immersion as being a tool and allowing for the real process to unfold. Um, it's mysterious how there's so many bad explanations centered around learning and Popper is entirely absent from the concept of learning and education, though he has explicitly criticized the conventional way of thinking about these things. So it's just curious why his ideas aren't taken seriously. Um, would you happen to guess the reason or reasons why? Of, of Popper's ideas being, being taken seriously in education? Of, it, of um, them not being taken seriously. Oh, well, there's... I, I think the, the default is is that he's not taken seriously in education. Yeah. I, I think the default is that people are... are all, educators are almost entirely as a group unaware of Popper's ideas. Um, and so there's, there's interesting questions about why. Um, I mean... I, I tend to think it's it's a a victim of its own of its own design. So if you think about how educators are brought through the system and how they become educators, like they're entrenched in the system that they then re-enter into. And if you were to teach Popper, it would probably cause you to hop off of that system, <laughs> as it does with most people who read Popper. And I think there would be fewer educators. Um, that's a bit of a cynical view. I mean, the the more benign view is that just more people aren't aware of him. Um, and, you know, he's not considered, unfortunately, he's not considered one of the pioneers by by most uh, educators. Um, even in philosophy circles, he's, he's insanely underrated. So I, I think a lot of the problem is that he's just not more mainstream, uh, which is, I think, one of the best things that David Deutsch has done. Um, is popularize and kind of bring more of these ideas into the mainstream. And obviously uh, what Brett has done with TalkCast and uh, you're doing some of this with your podcast as well. Uh, Naval Ravikant is bringing some of these ideas into the mainstream. So there seems to be kind of a sea change that's happening that I'm excited about. Yeah, totally. Same here. So when we talk about educators and teachers, for some people who perhaps understand the coercive nature of the system and the way people actually learn, they instinctively build up hate against the system. The system first, but then later it goes to the people, the people working in the system. And now teachers are all of a sudden bad people. But that's really a wrong way to go about this. We should be taking the hate the sin, love the sinner approach, I would suggest, and be compassionate towards even the seemingly evil educators. Because it's really not their fault. Even they are a victim of the system themselves. And hating on them isn't going to solve anything. So I really think we should be criticizing ideas and not the people and go from there. And yeah, so are you a fan of revolutionizing the education space? Or do you want to make incremental changes and sort of evolve the education system over time? This is a really great question. Um, so this gets at the heart of, you know, do I consider myself more of a startup founder, uh, you know, in the Silicon Valley kind of a bold sense, or do I consider myself more of like a, you know, like a philosopher or something like that, where things are, or, or uh, you know, just somebody who's like creating a slower change uh, that happens over time. So, so I don't think, I don't think the education system itself is set up in such a way because of a lot of entrenched beliefs to where it has the same sort of overnight shift in behavior overnight, meaning like, you know, a few years, not, not literally overnight. So, so if you're like, is it even possible? Well, not possible. Is, is it 
likely that in two or three years, something can be done that will radically change parents' behavior such that they completely pull their kids out of school and adopt Popper's philosophy and send them to Moonrise and do Moonrise plus, plus homeschool or something like that, right? I think the space where that's possible is is very small. And so what you have to do is, you know, it, it's like the existence of Popper in a way, like in, in all of his ideas. Like first you have to figure out what's right. And then you have to look for explanations that increase adoption. So the difference between something like physics and something like, um, or physics and philosophy and something like a startup is that startups are, are explanations of human behavior just as much as they're explanations on how to fix a problem, right? So you can think of the best idea in the world, but if you don't know how to create the behavior change that leads to adoption of that problem, then you don't have a company. And then that thing can die, whereas, you know, in a, in a physics paper, it can live on forever. Um, so I think, I think what's interesting about what I'm doing with Moonrise is I, I do believe we have, I do think we have probably the best explanation for how to fix the education system and how to replace it with something better. I don't think homeschooling in itself is, is a full answer. It's better than regular school, but I think it has known problems. And I think regular school, including private school has known problems. And so I think the right answer is giving people a flexible space they can drop into anytime, giving them meaningful problems to work on and giving them built-in community. I think those are fundamental and it doesn't seem to me that you can get those things anywhere else. So that's the explanation side or the, uh, the, the problem explanation and why I think we have the best answer. So everything now that I'm working on, uh, and this gets into your revolution question, is how, how can we increase the velocity of adoption of that explanation. Uh, strangely enough, <laughs> the main thing preventing adoption of this is the existence of school, right? Like if kids were not in school, they would be at home because there's no spaces for kids. And so people would be looking for spaces to send their kids during the day. So we've noticed quick adoption and very strong customer loyalty with homeschoolers. And so those are people who have already left the system despite you know, a huge inconvenience in a lot of ways that that causes. Um, and so that's, that's kind of our current market. And so a bit of what you're, of what we're doing can be thought of as how can we increase the rate of, of, uh, adoption of homeschooling. Right. And I think giving space for kids and built in community and things to work on is a really great starting point to that. Um, I think, I think the time horizon for this is like 10 to 20 years. Um, there will be plenty of adoption in the short run to where this can be a very successful company, maybe one of the most successful companies. Um, long term, I think it gets way more interesting because there's just no interest. There, there's no world that exists for kids, and we can totally build that. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about it. But right now, when you think about these issues and when you try to explain how you want to change the education system to the layperson, the biggest question that pops up is, Wait, how's it going to change? It's never going to change. How are you how are you going to make it happen? Well, firstly, there's just so many people who don't get educated in the conventional sense, and that's a big problem. So there's people actually fighting for the right to educate some people conventionally. And when you think about scaling this to a time where you don't need conventional credentialing, like a degree to get the job, what are you going to replace that whole rigid system with? How do you keep the proof of work kind of thing? And so... Those are like the common things that come up when you say you want to change the education system. And how, yeah, how do we deal with those questions? How do we answer 
those questions as well. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's, I, I think this is probably the hardest problem to work on in the world. That's one of the reasons why it's really fun for me. Um, it's hard in a completely different way than like SpaceX is hard. Like SpaceX is hard because physics is hard. Um, Moonrise is hard because there's a lot of entrenched beliefs and uh, regulation and you have to sell to parents instead of selling to kids. Um, so it requires adoption of, uh, the minds of parents and not the minds of kids. We get it. If we could just go after, uh, like if kids were our customers and they had disposable income, this would be the easiest thing in the world. Um, (laughs) but it's, but it's not. So, so that's the, that's the hard part. So, yeah, I mean, your first part of the question was, you know, about, I I think it was about places where they just need a basic education and they don't have nearly the, I I think you're implying things like developing countries, right. Where they just don't have access to anything. Okay, so I'll answer that part first. Um, I mean, that's that's a bit like pre-enlightenment times. So you, you can look at uh, cultures pre-enlightenment and the problem there was missing information um, and access to information much more than it was, and, and bad explanations, frankly. And it was not the absence of school. So right now, like Moonrise could not exist if the internet didn't exist. I mean, it, I guess it could if we had libraries. So it could just be like, you know, a place where there's books. But without access to information, you you don't have like the fodder to create um, better explanations and make progress, right? So what's what's actually missing in most developing areas is you know easy access to the internet. Um, once you have that and the devices to connect to them, um, and this has been proven um, or at least um, tested by people like Sugata Mitra, um, you know who did the uh, the the um, drop the laptop in a, in a box experiment. I think it was in rural India. Um, you know, once, once you give people internet access, you know, they, they, they want to get better. They want to improve their lives. Um, this is how kids are. They want to improve their lives. And so the way to improve your life is to acquire knowledge and to make progress. So, so that's step one. Um, we just need more internet access. Thankfully, thankfully we have things like Starlink and all the great things that Elon's doing. Um, okay. And then the second part of your question, I think was more about, uh, norms around hiring, um, like the need for credentials and work experience and, uh, like a proof of work, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 So, so this gets into like field dependencies. So there, there's kind of a spectrum of places where this sort of makes sense and where it makes less sense. So if you want to be a software programmer or a podcaster and all these other fields that are like, you know, increasing, um, in volume and importance school is very very bad for those things like if you want to be a podcaster school as you know uh school is very very bad for making you get better at podcasting um the the opposite of that is probably being a university professor uh which oddly enough you'd have better university professors if they didn't go through the system but that's a separate conversation um or things like being a doctor um so, so one of the core tenets that, that I believe at Moonrise is that for the most part, the idea of a curriculum is bad for kids because they are not, uh, their incentives are not aligned with the people writing the curriculum. Um, there are places where a curriculum does make a lot of sense, and that's when you have an outcome that's desired by all parties. Um, so, for example, Lambda School is, is a fantastic um, force of good in the world because Lambda School has buy-in from employers, from Lambda School, and from its students, all towards the same outcome, which is learn to code well enough to get a very high-paying job. And you have alignment of that, 
it makes perfect sense to design a curriculum towards the achievement of that outcome. The problem with school is that the, the outcome is not known. Um, it's quite often way in the future, and that future is ever-changing. The people who write the curriculum never meet the students and, you know, are primarily concerned with getting, um, you know, more funding for their state programs. Um, the people implementing it have their own agendas. And then you have parents and you have kids. And sometimes even the parents and the kids quite often have different incentives. Um, so so I, I think this is a long-winded way of saying that as, as, as you're looking to get a job, it should kind of be dependent on what you're looking for as a student to what you should do in terms of building your portfolio and what sorts of credentials you go after. If you want to be a doctor, it's probably still a good idea to go to college. Um, but that's that's even changing quickly. Yeah, it probably will take some time, but I could imagine nanotechnology coming into the game and the same work of doctors today would be done by those technologies very well. Again, there are some forms of creativity needed at times for a surgeon, okay? And I have to be very careful talking about this because you would want the surgeon to not play tricks on a person going through surgery and do what has been quote-unquote proven and that which always ensures a safe surgery. But sometimes it's a novel case, something that hasn't been known how to solve or a very intricate detail that makes it different from the usual problem. Now, now you have a problem to solve, and that's very rare now, but that's when you need to go beyond the textbooks and innovate and try to save the patient. So, anyway, that's just interesting, and um, AI could make doctors obsolete, I think, uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, so specifically with being a doctor... Most of the important things that are learned about being a doctor are learned by being on the job. Um, so, so there's kind of a, a path that leads to medical school. Um, and then, you know, a very large part of medical school is kind of these, uh, you know, these apprenticeship models where people are residents, um, which basically means they're doctors. They're just heavily watched and observed uh, doctors. And if you go and you ask a doctor, how did you learn how to be a doctor? very few of them will point to books that they read prior to that apprenticeship. Um, so, so I, I don't want to imply that, that it's a good idea for K to 12 for, for K to 12 to exist so that we can have better doctors. I think what you would want is a very strong interest in being a doctor from a young person and then skipping the, the college aspect of it. I mean, there might, there might be some prerequisite information there to learn about biology, that sort of thing. But the, the, the quicker you can get into blending that with the context of actually being an apprentice, even if you're not touching instruments or dealing with, um, you know, with actual, um, you know, human bodies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, people's, people's better word to use. That. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think getting as close to that as possible will increase the rate of learning and it will also increase the rate of doctors because there's lots uh, of hoops to jump through to get to that point. Uh, so you can get a bigger pool of potential doctors and weed out the ones who don't like it faster if you skip all those steps in the middle. For sure. Yeah. Lastly, I think it'd be nice to turn to taking children seriously in the philosophical sense. Often we see parents having intentions for their children and them trying to 
make the child do what their intentions hold. That kind of coercion isn't good at all. Whenever you see intention in the picture, there's a problem in the relationship, and it isn't a very good kind of relationship. It's almost like the other is inferior, in a way. And even implicitly making the child learn that she has to follow what authority tells her to follow, that's a very bad argument, and that's fundamentally from where most have learned it, I would think, their own childhood experience. And taking children seriously is the most humane philosophy I've come across for children, because they're people too. And yeah, I'm curious what you think about it and some of its implications. Yeah, imagine my delight when I started off reading the beginning of Infinity and being interested in education and children, and then discovering that David Deutsch was, you know, a co-author of a philosophy about children that I just happened to to really fall in love with. Um, it's so amazing that that he and Sarah did that. Um, I think it's primarily, if I'm not mistaken, led by Sarah, but I'm but I'm not positive. Um, I know yeah, I think it's mostly led by Sarah. Yeah. So. I think this philosophy may have changed my life for the better, perhaps more than any other, except for, you know, kind of Deutsch's theory of optimism in, in his sense of it, right? That's probably the number one. The second one is taking children seriously. And that is quite a compliment. Those are, I mean, they're just incredible tools for living. Um, I mean, so so let's let's take the aspect of children and their benefit from this away for a second. And let's say that parents agree with that, um, that yes, kids would like this way better. Um, what I think people miss about taking children seriously, if they're aware of it, is how much it makes parenting more delightful and easier. Um, you, you shift this burden from being a manager, like you're almost like going from being a boss and a manager at a company and feeling like you have to wrangle employees to just being a team and and co uh, like co people with the with the people you love most, right? Um, it, it's much more like being best friends with somebody than it is like being a boss, and that is just fundamentally a better relationship. Like people hate their boss, right? A lot of times, but people love their best friends, right? Um, so it shifts it shifts everything about kids. Um, it becomes more delightful to parents. So, so you want to have more of them. Um, your kids are happier. They get smarter. Um, they respect you more, uh, which is kind of like counterintuitive. But whenever you take kids seriously and then you have a disagreement with them, like if you've previously like not told them, uh, not, not told them because I said so, when finally you come up with something that you think they did wrong and you explain that clearly, they're much more likely to take that belief seriously and to change their behavior. So it makes it makes change easier as a parent if you're trying to actually, you know, have them adopt better behaviors. Um, I mean, from the kid's perspective, it's got to be the best thing in the world, right? Like instead of having a boss, you have a friend, right? Um it makes them feel like they're not being condescended to. It makes them feel more like people um, instead of like these inferior beings. I mean, I, I think what's another thing that's missed about this philosophy, and Sarah talks about this a lot. Like if you read her her writing about this, she's like, this is an idea similar to democracy. And I think she's right. I mean, I, I think historically, hopefully in my lifetime, we will look back 
on the treatment of kids in this in a similar way, not the same way that we looked on on the treatment of women and and minorities. Um, they are currently the most coerced population um, alive, and hopefully, the deepest aspects of what I can do at Moonrise is to change that. I think that's it, that's the best possible version of of Moonrise is that we shift through our work the the treatment of kids and giving them, you know, space and you know a philosophy to to be taken seriously. Yeah, it's definitely a beautiful philosophy, and it's had a lot of impact on my life as well. So. Yeah, I think Wawake Patel talks about this. Do you know Wawake? What's his name? Oh, Wawake Patel. No, actually no. No. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I'll, I'll send you yeah. his links. Um, he has this idea that, you know, like some people say, you should be friends second and parents first. Be parents first, friends second. And he's like, well, what does it mean to be a parent? Does it mean like you you have this a uh, high form of authority and control over a child is that what you mean by being a parent then no thank you i'm gonna be a friend and so yeah it's like very interesting right because treating your child as another person i think is one of the best things you can do for yourself and for the child so yeah it's it's definitely beautiful yeah well, how wonderful that she that she uh, authored this philosophy. It's it's so important. Um, people get so many things wrong about it too. I mean, it is not it is not rolling over and letting your kids do whatever they want all the time. You know, sometimes there are conflicts, and conflicts have to be resolved, right? And so sometimes those conflicts literally have consequences, right? Like you are let let's say um, let's say I was alone. Um, watching my, my four-year-old and my eight-year-old. Um, and I was running late for this podcast and they didn't want to, you know, get in the car. Right. Like that's a, that's an important problem to solve that has stakes involved. And sometimes kids don't fully understand and appreciate those stakes. And so there's kind of a spectrum of ways to deal with that. Right. Like most parents will just say, do as I say, get in the car, or they'll physically put them in the car with the, with, with the explanation. Right. So you know, the, the important part, and I, I think the, the easiest thing for parents to adopt is starting with explanation first. Like if you do nothing else, if there's a conflict and you remove because I said so and replace it with, here's why this is important, not just for me, but for you too. That's probably the easiest way to adopt this philosophy for most people. Obviously, it goes much deeper than that, but it, it's not the absence of conflict in the role. Chris, this has been a wonderful talk. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate your time here. And yeah, for the listeners, I want to put all these links in the description below as well. Where can people find you? Where can people find Moonrise? And if they want to visit uh, Moonrise, how can they do that? Great. Um, so I'm, I'm on Twitter. I don't post nearly as much as I probably should, um, but I'm on Twitter. So I'll respond to you know DMs and, uh, and mentions. It's just at underscore C Turner. Um, people can email me. Uh, it's just Chris at moonrise.com. Um, and that's our website, moonrise.com. If you happen to live in the Atlanta area or you're visiting, um, our space is in Decatur, Georgia, which is a little suburb uh, of Atlanta, but we, uh, we should hopefully be expanding here in the near future. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. That's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. It was really fun.